This portion of the 1982 Tony Awards is sponsored by DuPont, makers of better things for better living. And by Polaroid, inventors of 600 high-speed film and the new generation of light-mixing sun cameras that use it. Hello, welcome back to My Little Tonys, our season finale episode. Where we finish up 1982. So this is the episode we've all been waiting for where we finally tackle Dream Girls. Just a little aside, because I think we can just get right into it, but I remember when we did our 1980 episode, I read in a book somewhere that said that that was the last season where all four Best Musical nominees were profitable, but I feel like this season, every show ran for at least 500 performances, so I don't see why that wouldn't be true of this one also. I mean, I could see, though, Joseph not raking in the bucks, but that doesn't mean it didn't turn a profit. But Right. It's not a big production. How much? Yeah, I mean, Joseph ran for 750 performances. I can't imagine that it would be that expensive that it didn't make money, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, You know, we don't really dive too deeply into that aspect of it um it's just something that I was you know thinking about I was like hey wait a minute because I was like when I saw the Pump Boys and Dinettes ran for 500 performances I was kind of like hmm this seems (laughs) like a, a season where all of the shows ended up doing pretty well all right so so Dreamgirls opened December 20th 1981 closed August 11th 1985 after 1,521 performances music by Henry Krieger book and lyrics by Tom Ian directed by Michael Bennett choreographed by Michael Bennett and Michael Peters and the synopsis is inspired by Motown and R&B legends of the 1960s and 70s Dreamgirls follows the rising stardom of the Dreamettes an all-girl singing trio from Chicago the three best friends the phenomenally talented but demanding Effie White the beautiful and appealing Dina Jones and the eager romantic Laurel Robinson team up with driven demanding manager Curtis Taylor who is determined to see there and his star rise as their careers begin to take off changes are made to ensure their mass appeal to the pop market egos are bruised tempers flare and hearts are broken in pursuit of stardom inspired by the stories of groups such as the supremes and the shirelles and featuring many iconic classic songs dream girls is a love letter to american r&b music and the artists that make such music great Maybe I should have taken out that last one. That was stupid. Um, So it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical for Ben Harney, Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical for Jennifer Holliday and Cheryl Lee Ralph, Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical for Clevant Derricks and Oba Babatunde, Best Direction of a Musical, Best Choreography, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design. Let me double check. Did it really not win Best Scenic Design? That would actually surprise me. That's, did, did Nicholas Nickleby win? Yes, Nicholas Nickleby won Scenic Design. Okay, so it won Best Book, Best Performance by a Leading Actor for Ben Harney, Best Performance by a Leading Actress for Jennifer Holliday, Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Clevant Derricks, Best Choreography, and Best Lighting Design. I want to backtrack a little bit on what I said last episode where I sort of compared Nine and Dreamgirls in terms of like their sort of shallowness and uh, maybe lack of substance. But I think Dreamgirls, like I was really only familiar with it through the movie, which I think cut a lot of material. And I know the cast album cuts a lot of material. So it's sort of hard to get like a handle on it if you don't see like a stage production. So I think based on sort of reading other people's analysis of it, uh, there is more depth than I initially sort of gave it credit for. Um, And I think we also, we have another landmark with this podcast where I think Michael Bennett might be the last important person that we haven't really 
talked about yet because the last time we had a season that he was involved in was our very first episode where he made his choreographing debut with a joyful noise, the 12 performance flop in uh, 1966. And we haven't seen him since. Yeah, wow. Because, I mean, I guess he did most everything in the 70s and 80s, obviously, and we, uh, you know, are only coming back to that every now and then, so. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome, Michael. I mean, this (laughs) made me, it's, yeah, it's also, you know what is funny about that is that while we haven't talked about him, we've literally now covered every single show that Henry Krieger had (laughs) in the music for that's been on Broadway. Uh, I gotta say, this did not give me a very good impression of Henry Krieger as a person based on uh, his sound bites, but, you know, we'll get into that. Yeah. Dreamgirls actually had this really amazing thing happen where, you know, I think people were kind of divided and there was like a population of people who was saying like, oh, it's all flash and trash. Like, it's all about spectacle. But then like at the, the like the last date of like the national tour, like it came back to Broadway and reopened in like a very stripped down version and then that was when the haters were like oh maybe we were wrong like the show does have a lot of heart michael bennett died like very soon after that i think yeah okay so this started tom ian and i apologize if i'm saying that wrong i maybe i'll go back and redo it if it's very wrong but i think that seems right so tom ian and henry krieger tom ian was like this off-broadway playwright And he had written a play called The Dirtiest Show. And they, um, Henry Krieger, worked with him to musicalize it in a show called The Dirtiest Musical in 1975. And Nell Carter was in it and she had like a a show-stopping song. They wanted to make a vehicle for her. So, I mean, the elephant in the room is, is this based on the story of the Supremes. You know, the Supremes did have an original member, Florence Ballard, who was pushed out of the group. And she ended up having sort of a very tragic decline and... Uh, you know, struggled with alcoholism, struggled with a lot of different things and died very, very young. But according to Tom Ian, he was inspired because he knew Nell Carter. Nell Carter was living with these two other women, Lita Galloway and Marion Ramsey. And he sort of hung out with them and was like, these three ladies really have something special. Like I want to make something sort of based on their dynamic. And, you know, and Henry Krieger was like, I've always been interested in kind of backup, like backup singers and working on the sort of backstage, like climbing your way through the ranks show. Um, And sort of that's how the seed got planted and i do think that there is this sort of element where like i think that the original seed was with the like more about the relationship of those three but i think when they were book doctoring it and like trying to make the plot more linear i think that that's when like elements of the supremes kind of weaseled in there right and i think it makes sense that they deny it because I think, you know, apparently Diana Ross was very upset by it and thought about, you know, threatening legal action. So I think it is in their best interest to be like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. We never even heard of Diana Ross. <laughs> but um, and I think the movie like played up the parallels a lot more, which, you know, now has sort of become the defining document in people's minds. So they uh, were doing it for Nell Carter. And Nell Carter was like, I'm going to move to LA and become a star. And they were like, uh, all right, well, <laughs> we're going to wait for we'll, we'll wait for you. And then they were like, we're not going to wait anymore. Um, and they got connected with Michael Bennett and Bob Avian. And Michael Bennett had just come off of doing Ballroom in between this and A Chorus Line, which was a big flop. And he had produced it also. So he had just lost a ton of money. So it was like his reputation was on the line. His money was on the line. He was trying to find something that would sort of prove that he wasn't just this like one hit wonder with a chorus line. And he and Bob were like, we're not going to direct it, but we're interested in sort of producing it and developing 
developing it mm-hmm. with you two. And I think Tom Tom was directing at this stage as Correct. well as book writing. So they did several workshops. And in the first workshop, I think the first workshop had all three, Jennifer Holliday, Cheryl Lee Ralph, and Loretta Devine. But she left after the first workshop because she was like, this is corny. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't care about this. Throughout the whole process, the amount of times that Jennifer Holiday quit and like stormed <laughs> off set was, is pretty astounding. But it seems like they were not very nice to her. Like, I think it's sort of a combination of her, like, not really being into what was happening. And I don't know, I really didn't like the way that they talked about her. And I think some of it was like, how dare she sort of like stand up for herself? Because she was like, the material went through so many different incarnations. Like, at one point, she was not even in the second act at all. Mm -hmm. Um, In one version, in the second act, she went to work as a nurse for an old Jewish woman played by Estelle Getty. I know, that was the funniest (laughs) thing. I think that was like the first time that she quit. She was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, she's like, no, thank you. So she came back for the fourth workshop. So after the third workshop, they were like, the book's not coming together. And Michael Bennett was like, I'm going to come on and direct and you can just focus on fixing the book. And they had a quote from Henry Krieger that was like, he said that never in a million years was he going to direct a black show, which is like... There were a lot of really like eyebrow raising quotes in this. Well, I saw that quote, but then I also saw one where like everyone's like Michael Bennett is like the only one that could have done this. And like, so Bennett says the important thing about dreams, dream girls for me was that I had approached the material as if cultural assimilation is something that has happened in America. Dream Girls is not about being black. It's about being human. See, I, uh, yeah, well. It's a black musical, but it's about people. It's not a black version of a white show. It's very nice for young black people to go to the theater and see role models who are successful and still human. See, that that quote is kind of like, you don't think that that's the show about being black? Like, the whole thing is about how, like, they have to sort of sell their souls to be like accepted by the white mainstream. You know, I get like in the 80s that it felt like sort of the ultimate version of like racial equality was going to come from colorblindness. But, you know, I think now we can sort of see like what is wrong with a statement like that. Especially because like the setting and sort of world of the show is like so historically black. But also Bernard Jacobs wrote, Although it's hard to perceive him like that, Michael was really a great advocate of civil rights, and he had a very strong feeling that he wanted to do a show which dealt with black people in the same way that most shows about white people deal with white people. He didn't want it to be a show that catered to race. He wanted it to be a show about blacks as people living in our society and having the same problems as other people in our society have. He was very determined to do that, and to a large extent he did. One of the problems with the show was that the critics, to an extent, were unable to deal with a show about blacks the same way they would treat a show about whites. I mean, I think it's I think it's complicated. Like, I think that approach is admirable to an extent. But I think when you're like, I don't even see the difference between like black characters and white characters. It's like, you don't because it's a big part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that like the real thing is like, well, why don't you just have like a black person on your creative team? Right. And I think that is like a big issue with this where I I believe the only uh, black creative on the team was Michael Peters, who was the uh, co-choreographer. Yeah. And I guess talking on the... Tommy Toon, Michael Bennett connection. Michael Peters was also a, a disciple of Michael Bennett, who he had met doing Summerstock. 
And also something I thought was interesting and kind of strange was that a lot of the cast members, so they, you know, they did all of these workshops and there was an article about sort of the development process. So it said for eight hours a day, the actors and staff talked about music, did improvisations and exercises. Meanwhile, tape recorders hummed and stage managers scribbled. Everything you see is what we did, says Clevant Derricks, who played James Thunder early. We'd create the characters in the dialogue, and Tom would go home each night and put it in some kind of shape. Henry Krieger and Tom Ion were so mad at that that they wrote a letter to the editor to rebut that statement. And they said, we wish to reply to certain statements made by Clevant Derricks in Carol Lawson's article, Dream Girls Was His Dream. Though Mr. Derricks' contribution to Dream Girls has been outstanding, the creation of Jimmy Early and the other characters began long before his involvement in the project. Mr. Derricks states that Dream Girls was written through improvisations in the workshop process. In reality, he and the rest of the cast worked from a printed script. Improvisations, when they were used, were to find the rhythms and essences of the actors in order to enhance their roles. Their improvisations were not used to create the characters, words, or music of Dream Girls. It's like, why was that necessary? <laughs> Yikes. Ooh. So I thought that was kind of icky. And like, really, uh, seems like it would be really humiliating if for like, the creative team to override you publicly and kind of chastise you like that. Yeah, yikes. Cheryl Lee Ralph also said something similar about developing Dina. Kind of like a chorus line, though. Michael Bennett did give like a percentage of royalties to the people who were kind of like in it from the beginning. Well, that's good. Because I think by the time the first workshop started to when it hit Broadway, it was about a two-year development process. So a lot of the cast was in it the whole time. I think only Jennifer Holliday really dipped in and out. There was a lot of to-do about Jennifer Holliday and Michael Bennett sort of clashing in the workshop process. So this is from that same article. I found myself with nothing to do in the second act, Miss Holliday says. I was very upset. I didn't trust him either because I didn't know him. In addition, she was confused by Mr. Bennett's insistence that she wasn't acting the part. I just thought he wanted Effie to be ugly. I went through a psychological thing because I didn't want to feel ugly. Her resentment swelled. I was hurt, but I didn't say anything to him. I thought he didn't care. Mr. Bennett called her to talk. He was bewildered by her seeming indifference to stardom. He couldn't believe anybody might walk away from such a role. I just didn't want him to think that stardom was the only thing that's important to me, said Miss Holliday. How I lived my life was more important. And that's what I was trying to make him understand. Stardom doesn't really matter too much. It's just something I get for doing my best. It's a reward. I told him people have different ideals. I want to do records. That's the ultimate for me. He didn't really understand that because theater is his life. He kept saying, but people would die for this role. I said, okay, let him have it. It's very simple, said Mr. Bennett. In our working relationship, there was a breakdown, an inability on both parts to communicate. By the end of the workshop, they had stopped speaking to each other. Three days before the backers' audition, Miss Holiday told Mr. Bennett she would do the show for the backers, but not for Broadway. Mr. Bennett declined that arrangement. He said, you're fired, recalls Miss Holiday. I said, I quit. So she dropped out, and then eventually they were like, no one else can do it like her. So they sort of sent him to like wine and dine her, and he like took her to see Amadeus, and they, they made up. She writes, Michael called me after several weeks and said, how would you like to be a star? I laughed and said, I'm going to be a star. I'm going to make records and be like Aretha Franklin. He said, if you come back, I'll make you a star. Why don't you fly to New York and we'll talk about it. He promised that the role would be built up and continue throughout the second act. We realized that we had never really talked to each other before, only at each other. (laughs) I now felt I could trust him. He did what he said he was going to do. Not only did he beef up my role in the second act, he agreed to change my costumes, which had been designed to make me look homely. (laughs) Aww. 
I'd like to thank the producers of the show, David Geffen, Bernie Jenkins, I call him Daddy, <laughs> and Jerry Schoenfield and Bob Avian, a very special friend of mine. And I'd especially like to thank my director, Michael Bennett. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> thank you. He is such a wonderful man, and he's taught me so much about life and the theater. And uh, you want to fight again? <laughs> And uh, I want to thank my mama, she's watching, there's no special reason, just because I love her. And um, I want to thank Jamie Patterson for the ticket to New York three years ago. And I want to thank the wonderful cast of Dreamgirls, and I love you all. Thank you. So that led to them having this very interesting relationship, which also led to the most horrible Henry Krieger quote, which my jaw dropped when I read it. So this is from Razzle Dazzle. So he took her to see Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music, then the hottest show in town, bought her dinner, and rehired her. And then she fell in love with him. He let her on. She was under his spell, and he could manipulate the performance he wanted out of her. He gave her $100,000 to buy a condominium in New York. Some in the company believed they were sleeping together, but Krieger knew better. Think about it. She was 5,000 pounds and a girl and black. Which is, like, a horrible thing to say, especially to say about your leading lady, and someone and the interesting thing is that when they printed this in Vanity Fair, whoever like excerpted it knew that that quote was really fucked up and they changed it when it went to Vanity Fair. So this is the quote in that it said, some in the company believed they were sleeping together, but Krieger knew better. She was large and a woman. Oh, my so God. I can't believe they let that slide in the book. And then they were like, eh, maybe. That's. I will say one thing about Razzle Dazzle is I feel like it's the one uh, contemporary theater book I see the most at thrift stores. <laughs> <laughs> so there are other accounts where she was like telling people that they were engaged. But I also feel like I really feel like I take all of these stories about her with a grain of salt because I feel like there was this temptation to sort of paint her as this like Effie like figure where she was kind of unstable and like, a you diva. know, yeah, diva. And she, you know, she was really young. She was like 20, 21 years old. There was also a really, there are a couple of things. There is one anecdote in Razzle Dazzle, speaking of Razzle Dazzle, that I really couldn't make heads or tails of, and I don't know if it's just me. A turning point came one afternoon at 890 Broadway when Bennett prodded Ian and Krieger to come up with a strong first act ending. Ian dashed off a lyric, and Krieger went to a piano in a small studio to set it to music. Krieger diddled around for an hour, but couldn't come up with anything. He thought the lyric, and I'm telling you, I'm not going, was awkward. I was discouraged because usually everything comes to me really quickly. There was a knock at the door, and it was Ray Stark, the producer. He was filming the movie Annie. He said he was sorry to bother me, but he needed to use the phone in the room. He made his phone call, thanked me, and I went back to work, at which point the song wrote itself. And I am telling you, What? <laughs> what yeah. does Ray Stark have to do with anything? 
I feel like that story is missing like an important part. Yeah, no, I remember reading that too. And I was like, so what did he say on the phone call? (laughs) (laughs) That he was like, you're the best man I'll ever know. And there's no way I'll ever go. And Henry Krieger was like, that's it. It's so funny because I feel like in this Ken Mendelbaum's uh, chorus line in the musicals of Michael Bennett book, which is like part oral history, part just biography of Michael Bennett, I sense that there was like a lot of tension between Krieger and Ian and uh, Michael yeah. Bennett. Krieger also manages to call Tom Ian like a hot-headed Arab, which is like, why are you so racist, Henry Krieger? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I kind of had written off this score for like some reason like I feel like I in general am like a fan of pastiche I think that there are certain places that it surprised me and I think that one of them is sort of like this opera sung through quality that a lot of it has and this sort of synthesis of dialogue into the songs yeah and I want to talk about that because that was sort of something I was wondering about for a long time like is Dreamgirls sung through because I knew they had cut a lot of the music for the movie they cut a lot of it for the cast album so I was kind of like I guess it is but it's not it's like 75% sung through it kind of like flirts with being sung through but Mm -hmm. like and it has like all of these musicalized scenes that you would associate with a sung through musical but it has too much book to be considered that and like I can't think of many other scores that are like that that have like so many of the qualities like the amount of music and the type of music that you would associate with a sung through musical but it's not sung through yeah. And it also flips back and forth between like diegetic and non-diegetic music in a very interesting way. Jimmy got soul. Jimmy got soul. Jimmy got Jimmy got feel the room. of the opera but like Phantom of the Opera is sung through (laughs) but I think that what it makes a sense like I think that like at one point when they were doing workshops like they basically just had like a string of like scenes that weren't necessarily related so I do see you know the like straight book scenes being these like points where they're like okay like how do we string all of these really like cinematic and like really amazing stage moments like how do we just like put it into some sort of narrative form I mean it makes sense like it is one of those shows that was kind of like workshop to death and they were trying to sort the book out forever but I I feel like they did a pretty good job ultimately I mean I think it has it has its act two problems but what show doesn't so the Mandelbaum book has a really great description of the set and I think were we talking about that on mic about that we were shocked that this set didn't win I think so yeah and also nine I don't think we talked a lot about the set for nine but nine was not even nominated because it was just like you know a one set show where everyone is kind of like sitting around on boxes so which is funny because like on opening night the boxes were still wet and it's like (laughs) you don't even have a set it's basically still wet yeah 
Bennett also saw in Dreamgirls the most daring possibilities of his career, and his team came up with a scenic concept for the show that was simultaneously dazzling in its complexity and glitz and stunning in its spare simplicity. In terms of scenery and lighting, it was the most integrated design ever created by the team, and the set even became a character in the show. Robin Wagner created five floor-to-ceiling towers made of aluminum and plexiglass, studded from top to bottom with stage lights. These computer-operated towers glided about in dozens of configurations, creating and defining spaces, shifting the scenes from dressing room to backstage to recording studio to nightclub to television studio instantaneously, with only the addition of small pieces, such as a table or curtain, needed to complete the environment. Bennett even found ways to use the towers and a set of hydraulic bridges to symbolize what was happening in the action. Bennett said, They're almost like a narrator. By the end of the first scene, the towers become more like a cage. They start closing in. The dressing rooms get bigger, but there are more pieces in them, and there's a feeling that these girls are trapped by their success. Robin Wagner said, I remember getting a call from Michael at 3 o'clock in the morning from the Hamptons after we had the idea of the towers. He said, Can I make the towers turn? We knew they would, would move on and off, creating walls and configurations, but we now devised a turning motor that moved with the unit. We also had the light bridges, which were originally intended to just sit there or move, or move up and down to change the space. Michael decided he wanted to put actors on them, and that's where the numbers Step Into the Bad Side came from. They had this abstract set, so they sort of relied on the costumes. There were like tons of costume quick changes, the costumes, and then also the orchestrations of the songs to sort of orient you like where you were in time, because it really covers, it covers a long period of time and it covers a lot of different locations. I think that one thing that is really cool about the score is that you kind of see like the evolution of pop music over the eras that the book of the show covers. It's funny too i guess kind of like thinking of this like idea of like space and like backstage and not backstage and diegetic and non-diegetic sound and sort of this synthesis of it i don't think i ever really like in my mind classified dream girls as like a backstage musical um but it like makes sense like i think that you know in frank rich's review and like throughout like people describe it as sort of like having like this kinship to like something like gypsy which like now that i know a little more about it it totally makes sense but even just seeing like the big successes of michael bennett's career it feels very much in line with like something like a chorus line or even follies but mm-hmm. it's also interesting because um you know his, one of his big breaks as a dancer was doing like a background dancer on the hullabaloo (laughs) television show where he was like actually you know being a backup dancer for like 60s girl groups so it's like this weird you're kind of putting like all the michael bennett ingredients into this sort of like show that to the show that is like a show about like a very specific like part of like black history and like entertainment history but you know i feel like he's really kind of putting all of these other elements into it totally and there. speaking of the gypsy comparison which isn't really something that i connected either but it comes up a lot frank rich wrote a really interesting critics notebook kind of um comparing them in like a more detailed way that i thought was that i thought was really good the shows mr bennett and his collaborators invoke often pointedly are gypsy and a chorus line all three of these musicals offer heroines who want to break out of the anonymity of backup singing or dancing to see stardom all open with auditions of sorts, corrupt amateur shows in the case of Dreamgirls and Gypsy. All use a frequently reprised song, Let Me Entertain You, One, and Dreamgirls, to help clock our characters' progressions up and down the showbiz heap. And that's not the half of it. 
In both Gypsy and Dreamgirls, a female character becomes a star by transforming herself into a sexual fantasy figure for men. Gypsy Rose Lee's signature refrain in Gypsy, Let Me Entertain You and We'll Have a Real Good Time, is distinctly echoed by that of Mr. Bennett's Diana Ross-like Motown star, Dina Jones. Both Gypsy and Dina, too, are manipulated by driving managers who are also relatives, a mother and a husband. Both women reject their mentors in Act 2 by leaving the showbiz act that started their careers. However much they share the conventions of backstage musicals, Gypsy, A Chorus Line, and Dreamgirls are not the same show. They're written in different musical idioms by different writers, and their real, sh- and their real subjects aren't remotely alike. Gypsy is the saga of a mother and her children. A chorus line is a parable about competition, success, and failure. Dreamgirls tells of black people struggling to make their way in a white culture. What unites them all is a fondness for tradition and roots. Dreamgirls and a chorus line lovingly pay a tribute to a Broadway past that they then remake, just as Gypsy celebrated the vaudeville past that it, too, refashioned for its own theatrical ends. Though it is interesting that it uh, focuses on Dina as like, the primary character when I don't know if that's true i also think that like with them there like really feels like there's such like a big you know and i think this probably speaks to like how their books are written but they're just like seems like there's like an element of fate to each of the stories that like feels on par with like a greek or roman tragedy that also just doesn't feel like too overproduced i don't know exactly how to describe it but no totally and i think that that's like why people respond to them and like why people respond so much to gypsy i think that this is a show if once it's revived it will um really have its moment again i know it's shocking that it hasn't really come back and it didn't come to the west end until this production a few years ago was the first west end production right i wonder if i mean i know they've been talking about bringing it over but speaking of the new production though the song that they added for the movie for beyonce um listen which i think is one of the best oscar grab songs that they add to like a movie adaptation of a musical although i've always thought the lyrics were just horrible and i found out that i knew it had been inserted into the most recent productions but they actually changed it so it's now a duet between dina and effie it has totally different lyrics and it's like it actually has it sort of musicalizes a dramatic moment that needed a song where it's sort of like Dina deciding to uh, leave Curtis and kind of reconcile with Effie. So I thought, you know, usually when they kind of like shove in these songs that were like written for the movie, it ends up being kind of extraneous. But like, I think this is a great example of like figuring out like where it needs the new song and putting it in the right spot and rewriting it to make it fit. Because they, Dina and Effie never really get their moment to reconcile musically.
another interesting thing is that they, when the show went to LA, Michael Bennett like staged and added a totally new act two opening number for Dina. So they, they kind of are always tweaking it. Yeah. And I guess even when it was, you know, out of town in Boston, like it had got a rave review in Boston, but during the tryout, Bennett had Harold Wheeler, like after only asking him to, you know, reorchestrate two numbers for Holiday, he just asked him to do reorchestrate the entire score. Dang. And then also, and there was a new ending added during the New York previews where Effie rejoined the other girls to sing the final song. And Tom Ian says, I think we made a mistake by bringing Effie back. In the original ending, it was just the three girls and each had a section in which she, she sang about what she was going to do in the world. Then there were these separate spotlights on each as they parted. It broke my heart. I was told that because we had made Effie the star of the show, we had to bring her back. I mean, yeah, they did have to bring her back. There's a quote, there was a horrible quote in Razzle Dazzle where some of the worst, some of the worst quotes came from Razzle Dazzle, I think, because either Michael Riedel didn't realize how horrible they were or he didn't care. Yeah. But, <laughs> oh, it was when they showed it to Larry Cohen and he, uh, so Cohen thought it was dazzling, but found a cosmic flaw in the second act. After being replaced by Dina at the end of act one, Effie was gone for good. Bring the fat girl back, Cohen said. The audience wants her. No matter how good the second act is, you keep thinking, when am I going to see the fat girl again? So fucking rude. Ugh, that's so crazy. Well, one thing that I will say, people, when they were in previews with Nine and like staging Nine, they said that every single night at the end of act one, uh, they could just hear everyone like screaming for Jennifer. <laughs> For holiday they were like we were doing this like crazy long uh intermissionless show and like you know just in the middle of it you just like heard everyone totally giving it up for jennifer holiday so and they said that uh people would give her like a mid-song ovation which does not happen very often that there are a couple other like Michael Bennett sort of directorial flourishes that I want to mention Um, and one of them is the act doesn't end with her singing and I'm telling you it ends with uh, so you know she finishes the song everyone's like screaming freaking out and then it like transitions to the new dreams like singing their song so the audience is kind of like tricked into applauding for them and then also the opening of the show where we think we're meeting them but it's actually like a totally random group and they kind of like stumble in and they're like ah we're late so there's a lot of uh, misdirection 
Um, and they also, they talk a lot about how, you know, cinematic his direction is, talking about how he was able to do a jump cut on stage where she, during when she sings the song, I'm changing in an empty nightclub, the spotlights like narrow to just her face and then they widen and she's wearing a totally different dress and like the nightclub is full of people. Frank Rich writes in kind of like an afterword to his review, This show was not rapturously greeted by most of the press. And by the way, Frank Rich is like universally seen as like Dreamgirls' number one fan among the critics. <laughs> yes, he really wrote a, an incredible review. This show was not rapturously greeted by most of the press and seemed to baffle older Broadway audiences. It enjoyed a long run, but did not do well on the road. Some in the theater feel that white audience re- audiences resisted it. What those who didn't see Dreamgirls missed is the most spectacular staging that I have seen of any musical, an endlessly inventive and largely abstract choreographing of stage space that can't be found in the show's text or score. Well, there is a funny quote from the guy in The New Republic, Robert Brustein, who said, trying to criticize Dreamgirls is like arguing with a tank. The damn thing just <laughs> rolls over your body, leaving you flat as a pancake with caterpillar tread marks on your brain. The people who put this musical together could change the social system if they wanted to. there was one thing that was very fucked up another fucked up thing there was a lot of (laughs) a lot of fucked up stuff in this so this is from one singular sensation the michael bennett story so during the boston tryout the sereno coin and nappy advertising agency had designed the show's stylish logo three pairs of long lustrous legs feet arched on heels knees akimbo through slit skirts with three hands holding separate microphones at hip level and the dream girls title running beneath the legs like a platform the three dreams were of course black the logo legs it turned out were white when a poster went up above the imperial marquee the legs were a discreet light tan definitely they weren't black according to one source Light tan wasn't good enough for one of the show's producers, who was trying to kill the impression that Dreamgirls was neither a mulatto nor a black show. The tan was lightened to white, and an observant reporter made the discovery. The poster's skin tone became a hot item, an embarrassing column item. It appeared that the Schubert organization was afraid of identifying the show for what it was, a black musical. Michael Bennett found all this inexplicable but funny, a perfect example of meddlesome interference. And then there was a sequel to the logo leg story. When a television spot was being prepared after Dreamgirls had opened, some very powerful people insisted the spot feature more white people. In the Dreamgirls cast of 35, which included 15 principals, there were three whites. Again, Bennett was laughing. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it is also just like in also comparing Nine and Dreamgirls. Like, it's funny how like one show's like trying to like cover up the identity of like who's actually on stage and like what is the show versus like the other that takes this approach that's like these are like the like women of this show i mean it's very meta where it's like the stories about dream girls the you know the dreams trying to whitewash themselves to be kind of accepted by a white audience and like the marketing for the show is trying to do the same thing and it is also kind of crazy that then henry krieger who has said some of the (laughs) not great things uh went on to you know a few years later work on tap dance kid well hopefully he took some kind of sensitivity workshop in between 
So an interesting little trivia piece is that Whitney Houston actually auditioned for the ensemble and she got rejected because she couldn't dance. And then later in the 80s, when they were trying to develop it into a movie, David Geffen and Howard Ashman were trying to develop it as a a vehicle for her, but it fell apart because she wanted to play Dina. But I mean, obviously she would play Dina, but she wanted to sing Effie's songs also, which is like, (laughs) you know, fair enough. But then in the 90s, it almost got made by Joel Schumacher with Lauren Hill as Dina and Kelly Price as Effie, which that I would have liked to see. Oh, my God. That would have been <laughs> so good. It's funny that you mentioned that Whitney didn't end up doing it because she couldn't dance. I think that's something that I was surprised to learn. You know, it's Michael Bennett. Even just like in the language of how people talk about the show, like the word choreograph is like used so much. But like mm-hmm. there wasn't that much like heavy dancing in the show, apparently. No, it was just just all the movement was, you know, incredibly... Yeah choreographed i mean and i guess i think you have either mentioned it earlier today or last episode one of the best tony uh (laughs) performances ever yes wait i think i have one more there was one good quote about tommy toon from tommy toon again talking about michael so yeah so we we sort of talked about michael bennett threatening mike threatening tommy toon in the last episode so here's sort of a longer quote from him about it and also compare this to how generous Tommy Toon was about like going to see the revival of Nine as long as I didn't have enormous success in my career there were still times when I could get through to Michael but when Nine went over Dreamgirls it was a huge blow to Michael and it made difficult all further relationship I honestly don't think he ever forgave my winning when we got the money and began rehearsals for Nine it looked like blah 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 so we called him uh later after the nominations came out he said i could take that you would win as best director over me but i can't take that your show would win over our show because that would mean i'm not a good producer of course Dreamgirls was a big hit and a much more saleable commercial show than nine and michael had more tonys than any of us michael walked into nine once during a preview looked at it and walked out i don't think his ego could allow him to sit through it i was at the first preview of Dreamgirls and i loved it I was, a, I was definitely a fan of Michael's work, but I'm not sure that Michael was a fan of anybody else's. It is um, funny to imagine what it would have been like if Nine opened the year, you know, was in the Tony for the next year, which would put it up against Cats. I mean, it's crazy just in general looking at the 80s where it's like either every single year, either there was literally nothing going on or it was like two of the most iconic shows like duking it out against each other. Like, it's like, could you guys not have waited? (laughs) A couple of random things. One thing that I thought was funny as kind of a side note was that Cleavon Derricks was succeeded by his twin brother, which is like, it's very like Jesse Mueller, uh, Jesse Mueller's sister taking over in Beautiful. Are there any other instances of someone's twin replacing them in a Broadway show? If you know that off the top of your head, let us know. That's actually very funny because as I'm watching Younger, I can't (laughs) stop thinking how much Sutton Foster looks like her brother. They generally don't replace each other, though. I don't know. I would see her. She would be a really fun Seymour. I would see her in any of his roles. I would not care to see him in any of her roles. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking again of the movie, it is such uh, it's a travesty that they didn't let Anikononi Rose sing Ain't No Party because that song slaps. I'm 
let her do anything in that movie. It's like once they got Beyonce in there, it's like there's it's just these two. There's no room for anyone else. Another interesting thing about the movie is that there's a lot of like fun tie-in stuff. And one thing was a uh, novelization chapter book of Dreamgirls. Effie, will you come over here? Dina snapped over her shoulder as she raced (laughs) towards the theater, her left hand holding down the wig that, with every pronounced step, threatened to teeter off her head, her right clutching her mother's apricot shirt shoes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the one thing I'm looking for is a way to experience Dreamgirls without any of the music. <laughs> is that it? Should we talk about the performance? I think the performance, which I thought was a great call, was that they did, you know, one of the musicalized scenes. It's all over leading into End I'm Telling You. Which has some of the best line readings in <laughs> all of... I think that might be my favorite musicalized scene. <laughs> You and this with them, Cece? Cool and F.A. This time you know what you've done. So they bought you behind I said cool and F.A. This time you've gone too far. Well, I can... I'm not feeling well. I got pain. Uh, Happy we all got pain. For seven years I come with you. I was your sister. You were Jennifer Holiday is just like, it's unbelievable. And it's like, I can't believe that they are so rude to her because it's like, they definitely knew that they needed her. And like, I don't know, would this have been, I'm not going to say it wouldn't have been as successful without her because I think other people have done the song well. Like obviously Jennifer Hudson did a great rendition, but I mean, it's exhausting just watching it. Yeah. I mean, also obviously connection it's like you know it's like the parallels between this and everything's coming up roses is strong probably the greatest tony performance definitely one of the greatest act one closers she had that tony all wrapped up and a grammy once it was released as a single um she won the grammy for best female r&b vocal performance as she should like frank rich's review opened with him like singling out that moment as being heart-stopping oh i'm not Our last 
Best Musical Nominee. We got Pump Boys and Dinettes. Pump Boys and Dinettes opened on February 4th, 1982 and closed June 18th, 1983 after 573 performances. Book, music, lyrics, and conceived by Pump Boys and Dinettes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, who were the cast, John Foley, Mark Hardwick, Deborah Monk, uh, Cass Morgan, John Schimmel, and Jim Wan. Everyone else uh, is a John. He's a Jim. He, uh, it was nominated for one Tony that it did not win Best Musical. And the synopsis is, the musical tells the story of four men who work at a gas station and two waitresses at the Double Cup Diner, a dinette, located somewhere between Frog Level and Smyrna, North Carolina. The music is mostly from the country pop rock genres, um, and they perform on guitars, pianos, bass, and kitchen utensils. You know what I thought was very funny was the way that this uh, Tony's was structured, where we got this performance and the Joseph performance like immediately within the first 20 minutes, and then they made us wait a full hour for Dreamgirls and Nine, like an hour without commercials. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, they knew what we were waiting to see. I feel like I was like a little surprised at how early this came in the show. It was basically um, the opening number. So this was something that was kind of like bumping around for a while. You know, it was sort of one of those shows that kind of is blurring the line between Broadway and off-Broadway. It played... It started with Jim Wan and Mark Hardwick, who were sort of both songwriters and musicians, and they kind of developed these personas. They're playing at um, the Cattleman Lounge, um, which was sort of this like midtown joint for tired businessmen, and they would like play country standards. Um, and sometimes they would play their original music when it was slow. They and they sort of developed these like characters for themselves. And then like a couple more people joined the band. And then they sort of officially became Pump Boys and Dinettes. And he was like, but what is it? A band? An act? A show? No one knew for sure. Which is funny because I feel like people were like, is it a review? Is it a play? Like, what is it? Is it an experience? It's Yeah, it's kind of a concert. <laughs> so, you know, they like played off Broadway. They like played at a bunch of random venues and kind of like accidentally added, ended up in um, the Princess Theater, which no longer exists, but was like a 500 seat theater that barely counted as a Broadway theater um, and they ended up running for almost 600 performances yeah and I feel like the fact that it was like not Broadway was why it was successful in an article or like a blog post from Masterworks Broadway they were like the two like New York Times critics like loved it but then like Frank Rich like in a uh, like critics notebook like ripped it apart I thought his uh, thing was very funny he like compares Pump Boys with uh, Merrily We Roll Along and uh, the first, which were kind of two flops of the season. It's in this context that Pump Boys is an ideal antidote. It aspires only to be intimate and cheery, makes no demands or grand promises, no stars, no dancing, and operates at a lower than average ticket sale price. Better to take a flyer on a down-home party at $20 plus beer than to be affronted by $35 worth of slick inflated mechanics pretending to be real theater about real people. Lowered expectations lower the risk of grave disappointment. Unpretentiousness becomes its own reward. I think the best part of this is like his description of like a uh, raffle of uh, <laughs> air fresheners that you could get. There's another one of the Masterworks Broadway blogs. Peter Felicia is like, virtually all musicals and the first act with some dramatic moment as the curtain goes down. 
Rose switches her attention to Louise and everything's coming up roses. Sid fires his girlfriend, Babe, in the pajama game. But in Pump Boys, Prudy and Retta simply saying, we're going to take 15 and be back on the scene for Pump Boys and Dinettes, part two. But I, you know, I thought the the cast recording was very charming. It definitely is like a little corny, but... I mean, I don't think it's like as bad as I thought it would be. No, and I, I thought the Tony performance was very good, especially... Uh, you know, Cass Morgan's acapella intro, she really, this is a Tony's full of some very excellent belting, and she definitely gets hers in there. Oh, Prudy. Yes, honey. Let's not go back to work today. Oh, but we got things to do back here now. Oh, you know no, no, Prudy. I hate it when you do that. And let's close up the double cup. But Uncle Bob's out there waiting for his pie now. We well, gotta get this. Uncle Bob can get his own pie. He knows where it is, and he knows what it is. But I, yeah. Oh, I, oh, yeah. Oh, I. And I was like, this whole time, so she and Deborah Monk are really the only two who continue to have like Broadway careers. And I kept being like, Cass Morgan, how do I know that name? She's the racist mom in Memphis. Oh my God. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's funny because I was like thinking about how I'm like, oh, well, it's appropriate that we're discussing this back to back with, or not necessarily back to back, but in the same sort of like so close to Memphis because it kind of reminded me of that. But I'm like, this is so much better than and less offensive than Memphis. <laughs> it is also funny too to see like Dream Girls could have very easily been just like a, you know, like a night with like, you know, this like off brand version of the Supremes. Right. There is there is definitely um, sort of a depth and like a social social commentary element that is not in this. <laughs> in Pump Boys, the songs like the synthetic Disneyland-esque atmosphere merely purvey folksy prefab dis- Dixie atmosphere by the yard. They're as cute and happy and bland as smile buttons. The apparently all-white South they celebrate is so relentlessly congenial it makes Rodgers and Hammerstein's romanticized Oklahoma seem like Las Vegas by comparison. I don't know. You know, it's fun. This is like a fun one for, uh, for a community theater, I think. Well, in kind of his afternote to it, Frank Rich writes, Little did I guess that the environmental theater, theme park theater, if you will, would soon dominate Broadway and off-Broadway alike. On Broadway, this would take the form of total environment spectaculars, as perfected in London in such productions as Cats, in which the entire theater was turned into an artsy junk heap, Starlight Express, and Five Guys Named Mo. Off-Broadway would find its own bargain price, special effects free variation, simulated weddings, bar mitzvahs, and even funerals, in which for the price of a ticket, you could converse with or be humiliated by an actor, help yourself to a buffet, drink at a cash bar, and become part of a family for a night. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that covers it. The one other thing... I saw a mention that the song Vacation that they perform here was used as like a jingle in an airline commercial, but I wasn't able to find it because uh, it was too hard to search for and they didn't mention what uh, airline it was. So if you know what airline it was and you can find this commercial, please let us know. We're here to serve you. You won't have to wait. Check under the hood. All purpose menu. Everything's good. A full tank and a full belly. Best yet, best so best. On Highway 57, Pump 
Okay. So let's finish off with some quick hits. We got a couple of classic revivals. We got a couple of new musical flops. We got some plays and we're going to, uh, we're just going to get through them quickly. So maybe let's get the revivals out of the way. Let's see. So this was still a year that the revival category was not split between plays and musicals. Only one of the revivals made it into the best revival category, which was My Fair Lady, which was a production where Rex Harrison returned. This gives us a chance to correct something. I actually did write about this in the newsletter, but I uh, feel like we were not hard enough on Rex Harrison and Alan J. Lerner because I was very charmed by Alan J. Lerner's memoir and I didn't give enough space to the fact that they both were very bad to the women that they were involved with. And this uh, this comes up in this season where Lerner marries one of the actresses who played Eliza. She was 27. He was 63. It was his eighth marriage. But his last one, uh, she, she survived him and is his, his last widow. So I guess she got the last laugh because she's probably, you know, taking care of that estate. I feel like there needs to be um, a spinoff of six about his eight wives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think having like Rex Harrison coming back to play Henry Higgins in his 70s is like also the wrong instinct because when you have like a uh, Higgins who's in his 70s and an Eliza who's in her 20s, it's like, I feel like it just, you know, makes the whole thing feel way more <laughs> abusive. Yeah, well, in like a profile of Rex Harrison, he's described as having the reputation of being a debonair scoundrel. At 73, he still exudes mischievous sexuality. And when he smiles ever so slightly, he reveals a dimple. Ew. Boo. It's actually interesting because he was like very adamant about having the Eliza be British. But the woman who, after the first preview, I believe, the actress who was playing her. She got nodes or something. Yeah, she right, got yeah. nodes. It ended up starring like this uh, 26-year-old woman, Nancy Ringham, who was like from Minnesota, who had like never been on the New York stage. I think that this production was a tour that, you know, made its last stop in New York and played for a few months. But I guess the cute thing about it is, you know, 42nd Street had opened the year before and uh, Nancy Ringham was like, I can't believe it. It's like 42nd Street Live. In a way, it's sweet and sour. You hate for something to happen under these circumstances. We were all pulling for Cheryl, but I'm real excited. I always wanted to come to New York. (laughs) Um, I want to amend something that I just realized uh, that I was confused about. So the woman that Alan J. Lerner married, he had met when he was directing her in a production of My Fair Lady in the 80s, but it was not this one. I believe it was one in England. So she was not involved in this production, but he did marry a former Eliza this year. Yeah, and okay, so that's true. Um, But apparently everyone was horrible in it except Max Harrison. (laughs) So then we also had a Little Me revival, um, which I think was mainly notable because not only did it split the female leads, but it also split the male leads between Victor Garber and James Coco, um, which I think didn't seem like it worked. The It didn't really get good reviews. And it seemed like 
the biggest problem was people saying that you know the material was so tailored to sid caesar that um you know they were like you know why wouldn't you like adapt this to like not be it just felt like weird because they weren't emulating him and it was like something that was like so totally him right like i get bringing it back for someone like martin short but it's like if you don't have someone in mind to kind of do those roles it's like what's why are you doing this so then the other revival that there was also a fiddler on the roof revival everyone was like it's good we like fiddler i don't even think we need to say anything more about that so then we also had a trio of flops so first up the one that we're not going to talk about this week for reasons that we'll tell you later sondheim and hell princes merrily we roll along close quickly only nomination was for sondheim score and I think it's funny because I, you know, think that Sondheim has a reputation of someone who like shakes things up. But like, honestly, in this season out of like the new musicals, like this might in some ways be, especially in terms of the score, be like one of the more traditional ones I or agree. the most the most traditional. So then we have a pair of musicals that I believe neither of them got cast recordings, but both I'm very interested in hearing, you know, based on historical figures. One of them was the first, which was based on the baseball player Jackie Robinson, and one Marlowe, which was a rock musical about Christopher Marlowe, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare and who many people think may or may not have actually uh, written some of Shakespeare's plays. The first, first of all, we talk a lot, I mean, you and I were talking about this, we talk a lot about shows that have terrible SEO, and I think before this, Big really took the cake, but this one is also incredibly hard to search for. I know that both of those shows came out before, like, anyone even knew what a search engine was, but any show where, like, if you type in the name Broadway musical and the year that it came out and you still are having trouble getting hits, also Working is another one that's a tough lookup. <laughs> so those are our, our official... Uh, if we do MLT awards, <laughs> worst SEO, the first is definitely up there. <laughs> My problem with it isn't the historical aspect. It's definitely the sports aspect. Yeah, baseball musical is a tough sell. I feel like Damn Yankees is probably the only successful one, and that's because it's about Satan. Yeah, and I feel like there was like a profile where, um, you know, uh, Martin Charnin had to like approach Jackie Robinson's widow, and like it starts off with being like, Baseball and musicals don't mix, except for like Damn Yankees, which is like kind of a flash in the bucket. The other thing that was interesting is that this was not the only musical about Jackie Robinson in the 80s. There was also one. It was not it didn't come to Broadway, but there was a musical in 1989 called Play to Win um, that did have a black creative team, but I think did not uh, really make an impression. So people were trying. So this was the first, the first, the first was the first Jackie Robinson musical, but not the only. This like little snippet from the review seems to sum it up. If you're going to do a musical ab about how Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, there are two very difficult tasks that must be done right. You must find a singing actor who can impersonate the charismatic Robinson of legend, and you must find a method for simulating baseball games on stage. The paradox of the first, which opened at the Martin Beck last night, is that both these tough demands have been met well, and that the more routine tasks of creating a musical haven't been met at all. While this show offers about five minutes of good baseball and a promising star in David Allen Greer, its back is broken by music, lyrics, book, and direction that are the last word in dull. Oof. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the other notable thing about it is that this was 
you know, David Allen Greer, like fresh out of Yale Drama School? Well, it's actually kind of interesting because this year he had been in the Negro Ensemble Company's production of A Soldier's Play, which, you know, he got great notices for and has kind of become like a black theater classic. And he was just in the revival that was at Roundabout this winter. Um, that I really wanted to see, but oh, I didn't realize that. That's yeah. So yeah, he was like playing circle. the other, yeah, the like more mature part. Well, you know. actually, he and then um, he ended up going into Dreamgirls after the first closed. He was a replacement for uh, Jimmy Early. Oh, really? He stays booked. Yeah, he and like talking about char- someone who's charismatic. He's so extremely charismatic. I was just surprised to reading some of the profiles of like how egregious the lyrics seem to be. Okay, so then we have, uh, you know, in some ways maybe a, a predecessor to Hamilton. This Marlowe, uh, this take on Marlowe, because it was you know a rock musical about kind of an underappreciated, like a historical figure that is sort of on the sidelines of a very like well-documented era, but I don't think it was as well done as Hamilton. (laughs) But I'm very curious to see because Frank Rich's review was like, this show is so insane and like super fun. And like the only thing that's preventing it from becoming like a camp classic is that the physical production isn't big enough. Like, and it's like too, too tacky. And I feel like this is like brought up in like almost anything that I've read about it, but this is like a section from, I mean, it's mentioned, this is mentioned in the review and like mentioned almost everywhere else, but in um, Not Since Carrie, Ken Mendelbaum writes, a program note stated, the story of this drama is essentially true and accurate, except for minor adjustments in time for dramatic purpose. The characters included Christopher Marlowe, here described in a lyric as a 15th century man with a 20th century mind, which was supposed to rhyme with born before his time. Shakespeare, Queen Elizabeth I, and Richard Burbage. But if Marlowe was essentially true and accurate, why did the Queen and Archbishop Parker frug to a number called Rockin' the Boat? Why did the characters speak with Bronx accents? Why did Sir Walter Raleigh give offer Marlowe, Shakespeare, and Burbage pot he had obtained from Pocahontas? Why was the flimsy set made out of tinfoil? Marlowe somehow stayed open for six weeks, and Lisa Mordente, daughter of Cheetah Rivera, was somehow nominated for Best Actress in a Musical Tony. I did not know that Cheetah had a daughter who was also on the stage. I know. I think that's everything. I think I would, I'm curious to hear the scores of both of these shows. I don't think, I mean, I wasn't able to find them. Although the first, I think part of that is just how incredibly difficult it is to search for. But if anyone has any leads, not in the case of the podcast, because obviously we're done with that. But (laughs) I'm just curious if anyone has any leads for any kind of like bootleg or you know, maybe subsequent recording of a production. I'm I'm curious about both of these. So hit us up. So I think that's probably it for the musicals, right? Should we do uh should we do Tim's play corner? Uh yeah, let's do it. You know, Nine and Dream Girls were obviously big sensations this season, but I think by far the biggest kind of like phenomenon that was maybe the talk of the town was this production of The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. And it was like eight hours long and um, only ran for like 49 performances. What? It only ran for 49 performances? Yeah, it was only a 49 performance run. And I think part of it, interesting enough, it was, you know, a Royal Shakespeare Company production bringing it over 
was like a joint venture on the Schubert and uh, Niederlanders, the rival Broadway theater owners. Like it was kind of like a publicity stunt that they like brought this over together and like co-produced it. It was like a super limited run. Um, it introduced $100 ticket prices. Wow, I can't, and it won four out of seven of its nominations. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, and I think that, like, the cool thing about it, so, like, I think at first I was, like, a little skeptical of it because they were, you know, Tre- Trevor Nunn was one of two directors. Um, I believe the other one was... John Caird, and he got John mad Caird. that they mispronounced his name. <laughs> At the Tonys, they called him John Card, and he got up and was like, actually, it's Cad, John Cad. (laughs) Trevor Nunn and John Card for the life and adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. That's John Cad. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, the two of them co-directed it, but really, I think Trevor Nunn was, like, sort of the the driving force behind it, because he was like, well, like, Dickens was, like, really performed a lot, like, in the time that, you know, his novels were being serialized, and, like, there was this, like, tradition of his work being read aloud, and it being sort of, like, performed, but he was, like, really turned off by a lot of and thought that like a lot of the adaptations for film and theater in recent years had been like kind of off um so he kind of like conceived of this like really interesting way to adapt Nicholas Nickleby there was like a company of like 48 actors and like it started off with like each of them getting assigned a chapter of the book and they had like one minute to stand in front of the group um to like describe what happens in the chapter and then like through this like through exercises like this they kind of like have were like creating like a consciousness of like the story they were like really trying hard not to like get rid of any of the subplots and kind of like keep like the Dickens social commentary in it. So like at points, like random members of the ensemble would like be out of character and like give like the commentary. And like, you know, after like a couple months of working like that and, you know, breaking into smaller groups and kind of like doing a lot of, you know, devised theater type things, like they like invited like a playwright in, um, to kind of like stitch it all together and like see where, you know, things needed to be strengthened and without cutting any of the subplots. And uh, they eventually had this like eight hour show. Um, That's so fun. Yeah. And like apparently like Frank Rich kind of gave it like a like saying that like, you know, there's a reason like why it's a novel and not a play. But then he kind of wrote later on. I was tough on Nicholas Nickleby, which was deemed the theatrical experience of a lifetime by most of my colleagues, including one whose snoring was so loud that I had asked the management to either wake him up or change my seat. While I think my assessment of the play itself remains valid, indeed it has rarely been revived in the past decade, I overemphasized that judgment to the point where I didn't give full value to the production's theatrical flavor. Perhaps I was in revolt against the masterpiece theater style, Hard Sell, that preceded the show's arrival in New York. The pitch played heavily on snob appeal and anglophilia. For a while, the playbill for Nickleby had the cachet and Manhattan living rooms of a coffee table book. But then he goes on and says that a few years later, it like came back to the stage and like no one cared about it. And like, you know, he said that even like it being such a big hit and like, selling out like it's still like hardly broke even you know i was surprised that it ran such a short amount of time but i guess the false you know scarcity probably helped it 
The only other notable play that had like a really decent run was Crimes of the Heart, which had won the Pulitzer Prize in 1981. Um, Mm -hmm. But it actually did not win any Tonys. But I feel like so many of the plays we covered don't hold up. But this one I think is still fun and I would recommend. We also had, you know, a couple of random winners. Like we had so-called Well Winning for Medea, which is like no shit. To be in a Broadway season that contains Catherine Hepburn, Geraldine Page, Amanda Plummer, and Elizabeth Ashley makes me know I'm in a very classy profession. We had, I thought uh, Amanda Plummer's acceptance speech for Agnes of God was so strange. And it was one of those speeches where you're like, is this a bit or like, is this the way that you are? Hi, thank you very much. I I just have to say that I, uh, I love who I work with. And those are Geraldine Page and Elizabeth Ashley. And I had a great director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, and the writer, John Peel Meyer. And I thank you very much. I could, I don't believe it. <laughs> thank you. And then we had, you know, an Athel Fugard, Master Harold, with uh, Zake Smoke winning Best Featured Actor. Thank you. I thought I'd write a speech, but I couldn't. I'm going to ask you to help me. My father's always asking me, what am I doing? <laughs> and I tell him I'm an actor, he say, what's that? I say, I play, he say, big man like you playing. Um, and then we also had, uh... James Earl Jones and Christopher Plummer, Othello, which won Best Revival, but the only other nomination was Best Actor for Christopher Plummer. Who is Amanda Plummer's father? Oh, is he? That makes sense. Wow. It's a family affair, baby. Is that it? Did we do it? I think so. Do we want to... I guess we should do an end-of-the-season wrap-up. But first of all, we uh, get to announce our very first bonus episode. We've been hyping it up. Um, so if you're subscribed on Patreon at our Steven Sondheim tier or above, um, it'll be very appropriate because this first episode is going to be on Steven Sondheim's flops. So by flops, we mean his two shows that he wrote the music and lyrics for on Broadway that were not nominated for Best Musical, which are Anyone Can Whistle and Merrily We Roll Along now that we have tackled both of those seasons and you know not really gotten a chance to talk about those shows so we're super excited we actually changed this subject at the last minute because we were not as excited about our other (laughs) topic and you know we need uh we're dragging our asses over the finish line for this one so we needed to be a little more motivated so yeah so if you're a patreon subscriber that should be coming out probably in two to three weeks and uh And then we're going to be taking a break probably until the fall. Yeah, no, and I'm so excited for the Sondheim Sondheim flops. It's interesting to see what falls through the cracks when we're doing this exercise where, you know, so much of our show is, I mean, our show could be about anything, but the Tonys are really our guiding light, so. Yeah, so now we've finished another, another round. Do we have any reflections? I feel like just some, you know, like looking back at the years that we covered and thinking about this and also recently not to date ourselves, but like having seen the recording of Hamilton in what we're doing, there's so much imagination and so much uh, speculation that we do on our part. And, you know, I think that that's part of the fun and charm of it. 
Like, I think that obviously it would be amazing if we were able to see every show that we talked about, but there's kind of this fun and interesting aspect and kind of like an ever-evolving-ness to like the research that we're doing since like we'll, we'll never be able to see these shows and like there are so many different things that could flavor our opinion and knowledge of them. Um, whether it's, t- you know, hearing from someone who actually did see a production, I was able to see like an encores of Mac and Mabel over the winter that, you know, changed how I felt about that show. The more, it, I guess like the more I learn, the more I'm like open to like the idea that there's like, n- especially with something that's so ephemeral, like theater, there's like no definitive right or wrong sort of way to look at something. Totally. And I mean, I think that's something that we've sort of like struggled with like we struggle with when we're preparing it because it's like you know if we were doing like an Oscars podcast it's like obviously we would watch all the movies involved in whatever year but with this it's kind of like you know piecing together the different things I feel like that I mean you know the vast majority of feedback we get is very positive and like I really am grateful for that but I feel like you know our haters (laughs) our our few haters have a few flavors and one of them is like I think people who come into this show with an expectation that it's going to be like Ethan Morden and Ken Mandelbaum in conversation, like people who, uh, you know, have like seen all of these shows and, and, or just like generally are angry that we're like, that they like are interested in the concept of this podcast, but like we're doing it differently or have different opinions than like they would. And to those people, you are welcome to start your own podcast. Nobody is stopping you. We didn't, (laughs) we don't have a monopoly on this concept. Um, no one is paying us to, well, I mean, now that we have a Patreon, but we are doing this purely, (laughs) purely in our free time. We have no like studio supporting us. We're just two random people who, uh, (laughs) who are doing this. And then, you know, and then the other big thing that people, uh, like to rag on is our voices. And, uh, that's, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. We already know (laughs) if you like the show otherwise, and you just don't like our voices, don't tell us because there's nothing we can do about it and all it does is hurt our feelings and if you otherwise like the show then why do you want to hurt our feelings (laughs) and that's the last I'll say on that (laughs) but unless you want to Venmo us money to get um, speech lessons other than that I don't you know I think like the you know it's been so nice to to connect with people who like appreciate what we're doing and really feel like heard and understood by our obsessions and um that part has been that really keeps us going when we're kind of like on the grind of like oh you know we have our day jobs like we have all of our other normal life responsibilities and we got to like crank out the episodes so um so thank you yeah thank you and I feel like in terms of like learning stuff of course like us preparing for the podcast I learn a lot but I also just learn a lot from like the people who reach out and you know seeing what they're interested in and like what shows like really speak to them and like I think that that has really opened me up to things that I you know thought that I wasn't interested in and turned out I was so yeah I do always think whenever we're on the show and we like it like doing the show and we admit something that we didn't know before I think of that really mean review that was like they delight in their ignorance (laughs) so whoever wrote that review thank you I did have to talk about that in therapy and stop reading our reviews for a while yeah I mean generally everyone is lovely we like doing the show we love doing the show but I'm excited to have a break yeah and just so that everyone knows, it, it is a lot of effort and work, and it's a labor of love, especially for Anna, who edits the episodes. I do edit the episodes. So anyone who has a complaint about our voices, 
trust me, I'm right there with you. I'm <laughs> I'm getting the worst of it. So you're preaching to the choir, but this is us. Take it or leave it. I feel like it's helped me come to terms with hating my own voice and being like, well, like, what really is there to hate? Exactly. And I mean, that's something we talked about before we even started the podcast where we were like, we have to be prepared that people are going to hate our voices because this is an audio medium. And and, you know, that's that's okay. I understand that. You know, I and I don't want to harp on it anymore because if you're listening, you're probably not one of those people. So thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you for being nice and at least tolerating our hideous, horrible voices. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to end on a negative note. What's your favorite show that you like discovered from this cycle? What a great question. Let me look. Let me take a little look at our episodes. There were a lot actually. I loved Runaways. I, I bought a lot of, um, I ended up buying a lot of albums, like records of cast albums that I didn't really know before. Uh, I really liked learning about Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, even though that is not necessarily like an album that I'm going to listen to again. Um, I really love the Little Me album. Yeah, I think that, I think those are my faves. Yeah, I, um, you know, obviously, as we, I just talked about last episode, Love Nine. I, yeah, Noise Funk was cool to learn about. Um, I really do wish that they would like bring it back and do like a better recording of it. I know um, that's something that needs to be uh, preserved in some way. Surprisingly, like I've I really loved learning about Kismet despite it being weird um, <laughs> and having its own issues. I feel like doing a deep dive into Forum was good and made me appreciate it in a way that I didn't before. And Ain't Misbehaving is a great recording. Yeah. And I um, was happy with how our Rent episode came out because I was really nervous about doing that one. That was one that we were sort of like had asterisked as like, this is one that we really need to like put our whole asses into it. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think we did it. Yeah. So we don't have a date, an exact date for when we're going to come back, but we do have our whole next season planned out and it's really going to be a good one. So everybody enjoy your summer. Get ready to see us again in the fall hopefully everybody stays healthy and safe and is doing okay and until then you can always contact us even if we're not releasing episodes you can email us at my little tony's podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter and instagram at my little tony's you can support us on patreon and we will continue releasing newsletters when we're not releasing the episodes and they're probably going to be a little more substantial now that we're not also like juggling it with doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, if you are a subscriber, then we'll see you in a couple of weeks for our Sondheim flop episode. And if not, we'll see you see in the fall. Yeah. Hags have a great summer. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.